So um, this way of practice that we've been doing, being uh, present to our experience without much distraction, very simple instruction just to be with breath within the body, body sensation, and the tuning uh, and effort so that there's a sense of ease within the practice. And we have a lot of support, context of being here with each other and being uh, fed beautiful food, supported by hardworking managers, uh, not many demands on us, not any demands on us really. And yet it's difficult. <laughs> Clearly uh, listening and just checking in with everyone today and yesterday, uh, this, is, this is challenging work. You might say to your friends, what are you doing in uh, the middle of summer, August? You say, oh, I'm going off on a retreat. They probably think you're just sort of hanging out, lazing around, <laughs> avoiding everything. But it's a really, uh, it's a very strong confrontation with the pattern and the momentum and the habits of the mind and the reality of our embodied physical experience, much of which we spend a lot of time trying to distract ourselves from. So it takes a lot of encouragement and staying power to try and um, just be here. <laughs> Uh, as fully as we can and to contemplate our experience rather than react to it or get lost in it, to find that subtle middle way, as it's called, of being present to with this discerning and receptive, contemplative, inquiring awareness. Because usually that's that we we move out of that into just getting stuck to the patterning and the phenomena that arises, getting shaped by it, and then struggling within that and feeling very uh, sort of constricted and sometimes oppressed by what we're experiencing. And it gets very complicated very quickly. And yet, again and again, the instruction and the encouragement is to just keep simplifying, uh, just to keep remembering that what we're really doing is just this much in this moment. It, it always really is just this much, just to be here with just what's happening here and now, although when we think about it, it starts to become a big mission. You think about the, our practice and where we're going and how's it going and you know, there is a place to contemplate that, but there's a certain way that we do that, that we increase that sense of struggle and then uh, a, a sense of judgment, doing well, not doing well, and so on. So whatever we're experiencing, if we can get to the, the, the feeling of just being with just this moment, just this much, and learning to practice at that place, then it becomes doable, manageable. So it's not an easy path, but it's a doable one, and it's accessible for all of us, regardless of our circumstance, or the situation we find ourselves in, or the 
shape the the kinds of um, physical limitations we might have, the body we, we, we work with, the kind of psychological, emotional content that we work with, our lifestyles and so on, or what happens in our lives. So we were beginning to move into the discussion this evening before supper, we're beginning to move into exploring this territory of samatha and vipassana and that balance between these two territories and how they are interrelated and connected with each other and how they support each other for the practice of freeing ourselves from this unnecessary struggle that often is perpetuated from the place of not really seeing clearly and you know, one way that that is articulated, moving out of what this practice is about and moving out of that struggle is by um, a great forest master called, forest master from uh, the Thai school of Buddhism called Ajahn Tate, who said this practice is about discerning the difference between mind and the activity of mind. Beginning to to really see that uh, there's the activity, what comes and goes, and that's very impactful, clearly. But then there is that which is you can say it's just an an analogy, but the ground of the mind, that which is aware, that which is illuminating this activity, which is knowing it, noticing it. And to begin to discern the differences, this practice of the samatha and vipassana, this really, this is the, in some ways a very powerful combination to do that work. Because once we see that, we discern that, then there's a, a certain liberation. We're not so compelled by the material of what is uh, the phenomena and the material of our experience. We're not so shaped by it. And we taste and touch the ground of the mind, and it's a place of timelessness, freedom. It's unbound, it's not bound by thought and form and feeling and perception and so on. And we've been really um, spending these few days cultivating this gathering, using the breath, being with the body, this what's called samatha, which literally means the stilling of the thinking mind, sort of calming of the mental activity to some degree or another. <laughs> you know, it doesn't, for you know, most of us, it doesn't really ever quite stop, but it can be subdued and it can sort of settle. Um, it takes patience and it takes time and it takes practice, sometimes organically sometimes the mind people have talked about sometimes the mind just stopping without any particular effort and that's lovely when that happens but generally speaking it doesn't happen for very long and so activity of the mind starts up again but so this this training and this skill i mean this in some ways as, as i was saying the other night is probably the most challenging part of the path because it's very repetitive you know, and it is a training to again and again 
keep coming back and turning the attention away from overly activating the activity of the mind, coming to this simpler and slower rhythm of the body and finding, bringing the energy of the mind more into the body so that this this unified experience where the, the mental energy starts to calm and settle and pick up on the slower rhythms of the body, a sensation, the breath, and at the same time the, the mind's energy starts to illuminate and fill the body with, with, a, with a lightness of energy. So this samatha, this calming practice, this gathering as a foundation, as a foundational practice is something that we continue really and develop through a lifetime, little by little just through this simple activity of placing attention here again and again. And it's, uh, it leads to a certain amount of, can lead to a certain amount of this feeling of calming, steadying, clarity, illumination. Sometimes if there's a lot of steadiness and calm, can be a more sort of lucid sense of our experience, internal experience. The senses become very lucid, including the thinking. Instead of the thinking being very distracted and associated with complexity and strategy and planning and memory, and it just it becomes very uh, creative and lucid and and more connected with perhaps revelation or insight, subtle. The other, su- the other senses can also be, appear in a very subtle way. You know, the sense of inner light and luminosity, inner sound and so on. So these are some of the, and perhaps intuition, so the mind is very focused and it's not distracted. It's not sort of running out to the 10,000 things it, and it starts to gather around, particularly infused within the body and starts to steady and deepen, then, 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 it, then it's very powerful actually. And that mind, when it turns to contemplate and experience, can see more clearly. It's less shaped by it, stuck to, identified. There's more equanimity, and therefore more possibility to lessen this experience of struggle that we have when we get so reactive to our experience. But that samatha or that calming is often very dependent upon certain circumstances being in place for that cultivation. A certain amount of control, like for example, not speaking, not socializing, having this structure, having the silence. Um, Sometimes a certain suppression of the hindrances, not going to what's troubling us, but keep moving the mind back away from that. So um, these, this kind of circumstance can really be beneficial, but it's of course it's a construct and we can't walk around in a retreat center our whole lives. (laughs) So that we get disturbed, or even if we are in a retreat center, or in a meditation room, we still get disturbed. You know, someone coughs, or someone moves, or thoughts come up, or we can't suppress the hindrances, and then we feel disturbed, and then we feel our meditation is going wrong. So this is where then the, the vipassana, or the investigative side of the 
meditation is very balancing and important to complement the calming side and how they can work, begin to work together and to realize, as, as you know, Jen Chah would say, disturbance is the path. You know, it's not something in the way, actually. Or he would say, don't be so quick to get rid of your desires and your hindrances because they are the path. You, you know, don't have a path, really. You don't have those coming up. You, they are also the, the sharpening. Another thing he said, a sharpening stone for our wisdom and our compassion, actually. Yeah, so, so first of all, we have to change our attitude to what we feel is disturbing to us. And that's a big deal in and of itself, <laughs> because we're so quick to react. You know, whether it's a mood that comes up, or difficult feelings that we have, or you know, a problem in our life, or someone that's bothering us, or a pain in the body automatically we feel you know something is has gone wrong you know because i'm feeling we take it very personally and personalize it and then we we you know try to to start to struggle and try to get rid of that without realizing actually this is a, an opportunity this is something that we come into a different relationship with and some of the things we come into relationship with have a lot of length of life in them. They're not just going to disappear because we turn to see them for one moment. You know, some of the moods and the feelings and the habits of the mind, we've put a lot of energy in that over a long, long period of time. Being distracted, dwelling in certain patterns of thinking, certain emotional patternings that can go very, very deep. And um, so when they start to come up, and we create some space uh, to realize that that's okay, that is part of the work, that's part of what's meant to happen. But we want to engage and contemplate our experience from using this steadiness, using mindfulness, using um, some investigative power of the mind. So we're not just in that sort of overwhelmed, reactive space. And the only choices then we have is to keep trying to push stuff away or keep trying to move away from it. Or go up into our cognitive frame and disassociate a bit from what we're experiencing. So as um, Kirisara was saying, that example of Ajahn Chah, saying that the calming, the steadying, the gathering, it's like building that candle you know, it has some strength, some strength and capacity, and then so that you can light the wick and see what's going on. If there's no candle, you keep trying to light a match, it goes out very quickly. Or if you just build a big candle and never light it, it's not ultimately, you know, you're not going to see very much. You can be impressive. So, you know, so this is an, the analogy of the candle being the calming and the gathering and the lighting of it is the, the insight, developing some wise, you know, understanding, some wise way of being. And, and very much, um, it's, uh, I think in Ajahn Chah's style of teaching, this is something he emphasized a lot, this being willing to work with what we might feel hindered by, what we experience as hindrances. 
In fact, he said you know, one of the things when he first came to the West in about 1977, and he went to visit a few meditation centers, um, some of them in America when they were just beginning, IMS, Insight Meditation Society, and so on. And he was quite impressed with Westerners. He came, I, I was on a retreat actually, he came, that's when I first met him in a meditation center just outside of Oxford. And I was much younger then. <laughs> and he was, you know, it was about 70 of us doing one of those Goenka workouts. And uh, he came into the room and he was, you know, he was like, well, you know, people, these young people meditating. He was quite impressed by it all, really. But then he started to, you know, sort of questioning and looking at what we were doing. And one of the comments he made, um, not, not into that group at that time, but later when he went to America, he said, you know, you guys, you're like, um, you're like people that have a very good lawyer. He said, you get into trouble, then you ring your lawyer and they spring you out of trouble. And what he was saying is like, when you're in trouble, you go on retreat. But, and then <laughs> you get sprung out of trouble for a while. But you've got to, he said, what you've got to really look at is what gets you into trouble in the first place. So that is a really good way of looking at this, in, this investigation. You know, what gets us in trouble? Yeah, because we, we, we get ourselves into trouble and we, you know, we get caught up and tangled up and struggling and suffering. And then we sort of want to rush off if we, you know, to... Well, usually what we do is distract ourselves somehow, but then, you know, if we have a little bit of possibility to go on retreat, we'll go on retreat and, you know, try and sort ourselves out again a bit. <laughs> then we go back. and So to, to, to not be frightened, another thing he would talk about, don't be frightened of the trouble. <laughs> you know, have courage and, and to, to be willing to, to feel what we feel and be with what we have to be with which is a lot of what we've been trying to do these last few days. And, you know, as I said, and as you've said to us, it's not easy. And as we know ourselves, we've been doing this a long time and it's still not easy, I'm sorry to say. I hope that's not too depressing. <laughs> but I still don't find it easy um, to sit with my, you know, me. <laughs> it's quite complicated. <laughs> But it's, it's, it's important because if we don't do that, then you know, we, we, we land up having to deal with, with, our, with our pain and our suffering and our struggles with more and more sort of denial or more and more distraction or more and more absorption into you know, um, worlds of fantasy. And, and, it, and it gets more difficult, particularly as we get older. So to have the capacity some ways to build capacity, which is an aspect of cultivating mindfulness. We could say another way of talking about mindfulness is to build the capacity to contain our experience without getting lost and overwhelmed and without getting reactive or believing in it so much and identifying being shaped by the monsters that come to visit. <laughs> yeah. So, so to recognize what we, you know, and this is where the templates, and this is for some of you, many of you, this is probably, you know, here we go again through another one of the Buddha's lists. Um, I, I'll try not to go 
through the list exactly, but to actually name the territory of the hindrances is, is very important because actually a lot of what we're dealing comes into that template of what is named as the, the classical hindrances that are experienced and have been experienced by all of us today in some shape or form and to be able to really rec- begin to recognize them as that rather than as a personal failing or a sort of a, a personal battle. And so that when we experience, someone was talking about in one of the groups, you know, about really, and this is, I think, a very common experience for many of us looking forward to coming on retreat, being on retreat, and it's calm for a while. And then this first hindrance starts to, to, to come into play. It's, it's, it's called kamatana, which means something like thirsting, desire, or looking, looking to something to absorb into. And there's different shapes of the energy of desire. It's a very powerful energy and it fuels a lot of our human activity. And some of it's not too illuminated or too conscious. It's very unconscious often. It sort of just pushes us on and we don't really contemplate the energy. We're just compelled by it. And, and it's, not, it's not a judgment value on that energy. And it's not that that energy can't be transformed and transmuted which it can be in the practice in service of um, developing ourselves and society and so on. But often when it's very unconscious, it just agitates and robs us really of the ability to be content and feel a sense of fullness and well, well-being with what's with now and how we are now and what's happening now in our lives as they are. Because there's always this thing going, it's not enough. And we have to go somewhere else um, to get it. And it's very pervasive. And if we've noticed over many years that we go for what we feel we need to get and then we get it, and very quickly it's, you know, didn't quite do it. (laughs) We have to go get something else. (laughs) It's, you know, it's a great energy. A billion dollar industry is propelled by that energy, really, keeping us distracted and going um, on this kamatana, this thirsting, because we fundamentally feel, obviously, we feel a sense of lack. And that's a painful place to be. And for, for many of us, you know, in meditating, you know, some of the time, not quite a lot of the time, it's just actually facing that feeling of lack, that sort of hole. Um, you know, it's sort of flavors of loneliness and abandonment and need. You know, some of it's psychological and some of it's existential and some of it's just, who knows. And, you know, it's uh, hard to endure. So to withstand that, you know, this is building of, of a samadhi that can withstand what's felt without collapsing into despair or following that energy outwards, flowing the mind, flowing outward, looking for a place to land. And that, that fundamental movement is what the Buddha called sangsara. It's like it kind of never completes. It just keeps us propelled, sort of uh, translated loosely as, as wandering, but it can also have this sense of, um, yeah, it has the flavor of wandering, uncertainty, moving, looking, seeking. And again, not, not necessarily a bad energy, but when it's unconscious and not in service, of our cultivation, then it actually ironically depletes us and leaves us fractured. 
So we'll see that on this retreat. We've all and and the the inquiry, the vipassana, this word to see into, means that we we we're not moving on that energy, but we're contemplating it. So that it arises, we realize there's a choice, and that, that's a really important moment in 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 our human development, really, um, around these kinds of territories to know. There can be a choice, and the more mindful, the more space, the more steadying in awareness and slowing down and being willing to contemplate, be mindful. There's this phrase in one of the suttas that says, all things are ruled by mindfulness. So rather than collapsing under the momentum, it's sort of like being ruled by this this, um, aspect of the mind which is is aware, investigative, what what is this? (laughs) How is it? Where does it move? What's the energy? And and to contain that so we can contemplate and become and illuminate it and see it for what it is. This is desire. And, and, And sometimes just the naming of what's there deflates it. Ah, do I want to really follow that? And conversely, often coupled with that energy, underneath that energy is the second hindrance, this, this feeling of aversion, discontent, it's not enough. Sometimes it can be hatred. You know, we all have experienced probably uh, the experience of hatred. But it can be very subtle, just the feeling of resistance, um, irritation, and it's and again we can interpret it very personally and feel oh, I'm a really bad person, but it's it's just dharma, you know. It's when we see, when we identify with these energies, then in a way we're in sangsara. We're sort of we're propelled by them. But when we contemplate them, then we're seeing them as a dharma, as nature. This is how aversion is, and it's a very powerful energy. It's not bad, it, you know, it has, you know, all these energies have within them a certain, actually, a certain piece of information to discern. You know, so that we might not want to just throw out the whole energy, but to contemplate it, what's this saying? You know, someone was asking earlier, this name of this retreat is uh, from separateness to seamless reality. Is there a place for boundaries. Well, psychologically, of course, there is. <laughs> There's different levels of understanding. Um, so, so when those are overridden um, and there's aversion, maybe there's something that's, that we need to hear. But if we just actually consume with that aversion and if we get confused by it, if we project it inwardly and outwardly, then we don't often discern what is actually the truth here? Or if we're just shaped by it, then we just become sort of constricted and grumpy and our energies start to shut down. So it's not the energy so much, but it's the ability to contemplate it and to see it's a dharma. How is it? How is it felt in the body? And the same with dullness. And... Um, 
you know, some dullness is, you know, it sounds like we're just going dull, but it can also be a really, I've been contemplating in myself, my own ignorance, <laughs> the places in me that, that really don't, don't, they're hard to see because they sort of these places where they, where I close down, where the mind divides, usually around views, if someone has a, an opposing view that I don't agree with. And I can feel myself going into my own view and then it creates a division. And in that process, there is a dulling of the intelligence. There is a sort of deliberate sort of movement to, to a righteous rigidity. And it can be very subtle. It's not necessarily a gross energy. But it's a sort of dulling and splitting. And it's quite hard to see that and to, to grow out of that, to keep the mind more malleable and open receptive or the opposite restlessness when we just you know re restless worry anxiety that kind of energy that's can't settle we just worry about things um, and the last you know this is the classical template I did go through a list after all uh, but it's hard, no way of avoiding it but there's an important list actually because we're, this is the material we're working with the last of the five hindrances is doubt and it's, it's connect, the doubt, doubt is connected with the cognitive thinking realm it's connected with trying to think ourselves really to a solution trying to get the right answer. You know, is this right? Is that right? Is this true? And, you know, there, again, there's a positive aspect in that energy, inquiry, and, you know, um, not rushing to a conclusion. But there's also a very debilitating part of that energy that we can never really settle and trust and go beneath the cognitive frame and to really enter the stream of the Dharma in a, in a deeper way. It requires that we that we go beyond the cognitive, that we see the limitation of thinking. And we see this is just doubt, this is just thought. Rather than coming up with the right thought, the right view. And then sort of building our castle around that. And it's a very important shift when that that's why when they talk about entering the stream of the Dharma, they talk about seeing through through doubt as one of the factors, seeing through the mind caught in its own structures of conceptualizing self and other in the world and creating views and frameworks around that. Um, and then sort of moving, you know, but underneath that, it's, you know, not seeing that these are just sort of constructs and not necessarily ultimate truths. <laughs> Um, or just the simple level of doubt of should I do this, should I do that? And just, you know, sometimes that can drive us crazy. What should I do with my life? Tell me. You know, it's going to go bring up an astrologer, go and get a psychic reading. And, yeah. But even if the Buddha said, do this, and you go off and do it, then still probably, you know, maybe if the Buddha said that, it might take a while for the doubt to start again, but <laughs> somewhere along the line, the doubt would come. Is that really the Buddha? Or is that me just going crazy? <laughs> so to be able to, rather than trying to 
work it all out, sometimes just to go, this is the mind in doubt. It's uncertain. Or as Ajahn Chah would say, you know, learning to... Um... Actually, what did he say? <laughs> <laughs> What's that right? really great quote? Trying about to... Doubt. Yeah, about certainty. Looking for certainty in that which is uncertain about the suffering. Looking for certainty... <laughs> 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 Looking for certainty in uncertainty, one's bound to suffer. It's a really good one. We've got that actually on our wall in our home in South Africa, because we forget so much. <laughs> Trying to get certain, I just oh, I want to be so certain about so much. And we suffer a lot, don't we, because of that. So to, to be able to contemplate you know, the, contemplate what we experience, and particularly in the in, when we are faced with the hindrances, in the, all their different subtle elements, and the feeling tones connected with that. And one of the ways we've been talking about this uh, practice is using that quality of attention that we're gathering around the breath to actually go, you know, talking about going beneath the cognitive to what is felt. This is um, where a sort of alchemical transmutation of energy happens within the embodied energetic system. The body is not just the physical body, of course. It's what we usually perceive, but it's also an energetic experience. And particularly as we meditate, we experience the body very energetically. And the, the mental realms often, particular patternings that we experience in particular emotion, emotions and memory and so on, often have a resonance into the felt, felt sense or the feeling tone within the body. So in the second foundation of mindfulness, we're encouraged to contemplate feeling. Sensation is a Vedana, it's a feeling tone. And, you know, often is at the root of emotion, emotional content and connected with, you know, it's not that you can pull out completely all these threads, emotion, mental construct, feeling tone, physical sensation, they're all sort of in a way, in a, in a hologram. But one place we can really, where mindfulness can really settle, and it's when um, the Buddha talked about in this sutta, that uh, all things are ruled, or can be, ruled by mindfulness. He also talked about all things converging, all things converge in feeling. And often what, what we're impacted as, is, as in this sensitive body, is the experience of feeling. We feel stuff. And often we really you know, dis disassociate from that feeling because it's not very easy to feel pain. <laughs> discomfort and it's physical emotional mental and so one of the teachings that the Buddha gave that's really helpful is to just be able to notice feeling just as feeling rather than making a huge story out of it and he talks about this in terms of and again this will be familiar for some of you about the two darts or the dart sutta he talks about if you have in the body, for example, an unpleasant feeling, it's a bit like you've been hit with a dart. 
It's not, you know, maybe it's a heaviness, maybe it's a physical pain, maybe it's um, emotional heat from a strong emotion, maybe it's the panicky feelings, and people are talking about anxiety and panicky feelings in the body. And so that's painful, but then what we do is then we add a second dart into the pain. The mind becomes averse to what is felt, to what is experienced. Or it desires distraction from what is experienced. Or, it, or there's pleasant feeling and then there's the desire to maintain that and hold on to that in a way that starts to generate stress. It's not that pleasant feeling. In fact, we aim to generate pleasant feeling in meditation, but it's a subtle thing not to then to depend on it because it will change. So to know in this contemplation, this vipassana or a contemplation of insight, is just to know in the second foundation, it's very simple. This, in this feeling, what is felt is, is painful, pleasant or unpleasant. Pleasant or unpleasant. So that takes a lot of the heat out of it. It takes a lot of the personal reactivity out of it. It takes the personal story out of it. Not that any that all of that doesn't have its place, but just to get to the you know cut to the quick of the issue, which mean which is really to stop suffering. <laughs> That's really the issue, <laughs> the main issue, and clear you know open energy in the mind is you know that we can do that very quickly sometimes. Once we have uh, some strength just to see, it doesn't mean that the pain will stop necessarily, but we're not adding more to it. And often the pain won't stop because there's a karma, there's momentum, some things set in motion that have you know, perhaps a lot of energy in them for all sorts of reasons. And so you know, it takes some skill to withstand and work and discern what is a right response to what is felt, what is experienced, what generates suffering. But the first thing we can do is stop adding to it through this then generating a mental pain why me, and what should I do, and it's not fair, and it's been going on too long, and just to say it's just a painful feeling, painful experience. And we can do this too, you know, just extend it, we beginning with ourselves. But one of the things I've been contemplating is how much we can suffer because of what other people do, which impacts and we feel. Yeah. It's like that story I was saying the other night when Ajahn Chah said, are those boulders heavy? And everyone, yeah, they're very heavy. And he said, they're not if you don't pick them up. And we pick up the boulders of, you know, not only have we got our own thing going, but it's not to say we're not aware or sensitive or responsive, but how much do we start suffering for what other people are doing or what's happening on the planet? And again, it doesn't mean to say we're not, we're not responsive or that we can't respond to that suffering or we can't acknowledge it, but in a certain way, it doesn't really help to suffer with the suffering to the point that it starts to debilitate us and overwhelm us and activate us into into uh, fear and overwhelm, panic, and so on. So some skill, it's not a skill of, it's not shutting down, it's not, it's not a 
value judgment and what is felt and experienced or on suffering, but it's learning to extricate ourselves from this compulsion to just blindly go along with what is experienced without seeing clearly how we are perpetuating our own, our own suffering. It's not someone doing it to us often. There's a certain place where we're, we're just, you know, the, the lack of seeing clearly is, means that we're doing it to ourselves, creating unnecessary struggle around what is already difficult, being uh, alive in life is, you know, basically pretty challenging a lot of the time. <laughs> but, you know, we don't have to create more suffering around that. So this, this vipassana, to begin to contemplate what is experienced, you know, we're gathering, calming, steadying. And then if there is disturbance, where all the hindrances arise, or something comes to visit that's uncomfortable to realize and see, we can see in moments when we don't get lost, this is an opportunity here to take that same quality of attention, to breathe with, to contemplate, to inquire what is happening, it's you know, desire or aversion, wanting or not wanting, dullness, restlessness, thinking, so on, doubt. And to realize that these, these, you know, what is challenging becomes ultimately the fuel for, for our cultivation. As, as once Ajahn Chah came, again in the very early years of the um, building of Chithurst Monastery, actually some of you I know, know that monastery, you've been there, it's where I, Kitty Sorrow, and I lived for many years, I ordained there again a long time ago. But in the very, very early years when it first started, and it was just a building site, there was a lot of you know, idealistic enthusiasm about it all. And Ajahn Chah, I think it was then, it was about seven, 1979, came to visit and he said to Ajahn Sumedho, who was the abbot then, at, uh, you know, founding um, teacher, he said, how's it all going? It was a fledgling community. And Ajahn Sumedho said, it's going really well. And Ajahn Chah said, well, there won't be much wisdom here then, will there? <laughs> Not that one wishes troubles on anyone, but, you know, there's also in the, in the um, Vajrayana school, they talk about the, you know, the mightier the suffering, the mightier the blaze of light. You know, the, the deeper the challenge that we have both personally and now collectively, the greater the potential for our awakening. Because, and especially when we stop moving around it and we're willing to face and, and be impacted by what is felt and what is experienced and what is hugely challenging and, and to intersect that moment of reactivity with a moment of mindful presence, then, there is, then it's a game changer, really. You know, because that quality of presence that we're bringing to the moment and awareness is connected to the Dharma. And the Dharma is, is not Buddhism. The Dharma is this profound intelligence. It doesn't belong to any religion or Buddhism, but it's, it's, it is available 
for all of us. It functions as awareness and it functions in response to conditions. When we're not so busy reacting, we can tune into that and hear its response, wise response. So as Ajahn Chah said, not to fear the challenges, not to hide, as he would say, not to hide in a bunker, <laughs> but to, to, you know, we get really adept at the practice, we can even welcome them. Well, you know, maybe we won't go there right now, but <laughs> there's moments when you can't do anything else actually in life, you just go, okay, let's bring it on. <laughs> But it's nice now not to have to do that. We can just very gently <laughs> stay with our breath, continue the practice, planting the seeds for the fruition of the practice. And as the Buddha said, that as one of the fruitions of the practice is freedom from being hindered through this seeing clearly the nature of the hindrances. And he said, one that can do that, he said, it's like being free from debt or free from sickness, or free from servitude, or free from prison, or like you've been on a long, long journey in a wilderness, in a barren place, and you come to an oasis, and you're nourished. So this is our work, this is our practice, little by little to free the heart, and to reclaim our core, brilliant sanity and well-being and authentic wisdom, deeply rooted in presence, connected and receptive to the eternal and holy Dharma. This is our birthright and our possibility. Let's not give up. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.